well, she says that because I have no voice. So this should be fun. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to keep the mute button handy. And uh, if you're watching this on video, it's because we recorded it on first service and I left. So uh, we may, uh, this may be the only one. We'll see if I have a voice for second service. We'll see what happens. Um, we've been working our way through the Old Testament, right? And we began the first five books of the Bible. We taught through Exodus. Uh, on Sundays, our community groups read through the Torah. Uh, we then went into the rise and fall of the kingdom in First and Second Samuel, and we read through all those kind of historical books and the prophets leading up to the exile. Uh, we're going to pick up in Daniel in just a couple, in just a few weeks, uh, and talk about the exile and during that, and then we're going to talk about the return in Ezra and Nehemiah before the end of the year. So today is just a quick. Uh, or Ecclesiastes. Today we start Ecclesiastes. It's just a quick trip through the wisdom literature. And so uh, if you've been a part of our community groups, the reading has included things like a psalm a day, things like that. And so the wisdom literature, whether it be um, Proverbs or Psalms or Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, they're given to us for a purpose. And so I'm going to kind of give us a starting point. We'll put this on the screen. Uh, Christian wisdom is about applying God's eternal truths to our everyday lives. Our goal should be to live a life that leaves a legacy that will last into eternity. Last time I taught through this, that was my focus, was living a life that will live on beyond you. Today and over the next three weeks or so, we're going to look at applying God's wisdom to our lives. That same goal should be in place leaving a legacy of faith for those beyond us. Um, but today, how do we live this out? How do we take God's, God's truths and apply them today to our life? So Ecclesiastes run right where we were, starting in verse 1. It says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So the words of the preacher. That's how Solomon opens this up. Solomon is our author. When he opens up Proverbs, he writes to his son. And so it's the uh, kind of that throughout time, a father to a son passing off what he's learned. Uh, even those famous passages that women like, like the Proverbs 31 woman, things like that. Those are words written from a father to a son. Son, this is the woman you're looking for, right? And so in this one, Solomon calls himself the preacher. And that gives us the emphasis that he is proclaiming God's truth to God's people, right? That these are words to God's people, and he's doing that like a preacher, like today, right? That we would have these words proclaimed to us, but they're inherently tied to our faith. And then he says, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. For those of you who know much about the Bible, it doesn't take much to know, uh, Solomon became the wealthiest man ever, uh, could be to this day, who knows, right? But he became the wealthiest man alive, and he had the most power. As Israel rises to its prominence under David, Solomon grows it. And Solomon is imperfect. He has tons of flaws. But at one point, he asks God for wisdom, and God grants him wisdom. And he is called the wisest man ever. Now, there's a difference between knowing right and doing right. And though he knows what is right, he often does what is wrong. We call that sin right? And to do that and to know it is different. So 
He kind of captures this, if you will, at the end of his life or later in his life. He probably wrote Song of Solomon, a very beautiful romantic poem about a man and a woman, about, about a godly romantic relationship earlier in life. Probably accumulated the Proverbs over time as they're not all original material by him. He's collected them. And then Ecclesiastes is that bit of summary at the end of his life that he can tell everyone, not just his son, this applies to everyone, about wisdom. So verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So let's start with what that definition is. So we'll put this up. Uh, vanity is the quality of being worthless or futile. The vanity of a human wishes was the example in the dictionary. And I say that because when we hear the word vanity, we think of vanity like one who is vain, who is about their image. The secondary definition is one that is worth, is something that is worthless, right? So giving your time or your life to something, your heart to something that is worthless, he says, is a vanity of vanities. It's the most worthless of worthless things. Verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So Solomon asks us this question, and he says this, what is this life or what is to be gained in this life? What is this life all about? Right? Like if you go to work and spend your time working so hard, and, and I know this applies uh, now, today, modern day, to women and men, right? Used to be that we had uh, a category of, you know, if you go back decades, uh, men that were workaholics. And, and really that's grown to, especially with vocational women and career women, that's grown to be ubiquitous that people can struggle with this workaholics, that they're striving for this thing. And he really begins the question there. What's the point if all you do is work and say you make something, right? You can make widgets, you know, you can make something, you can make something, you can make pins. Yeah, they're useful, but the world won't stop going around without them. You can make a vaccine, right, that has been, uh, you know, highly desired in this last season, right? You can make something even important, but at the end of it all, people who use pens, people who get vaccines still die. And so he's asking this question, what is it if you spend all your time given to that, what do you actually gain in the end? Verse four, he says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Let me pause there for a second. When he says the earth remains forever, he's not making an eschatological statement about the state of end times and that God is going to remake the earth, that this earth will be consumed and a new one. He's not talking about that. He's talking about this. If you live on this planet, it is likely that you will come and go and the earth will still be here. You were born on it, you will probably be buried in it. Same idea, right? He's not making a global theological statement. He's giving us wisdom. Wisdom written in poetry doesn't have to make everything simply work. Does that make sense? It doesn't have to be about end times. It's just saying, you live a life, you come and go, the earth's still here. Sun still rises, sun still sets, you're gone. That's kind of what he's saying. By the way, 
My wife and I have been talking since I've lost my voice. I have one sound and it's angry. So that's what you get. It's not because I'm angry, just for the record. All right. Get it even when I'm healthy. So, verse six the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, it circuits, and the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. Solomon tries to give us this perspective, right? That things go, the wind blows, and like it blows to the south, and all of a sudden it comes back all the way around the earth and comes around again. He's not making a scientific statement about wind. He's just saying it never runs out. All the waters flow into the ocean. Seems like the oceans are never full, right? You may not hear that or feel that in the middle of a tropical storm, but you get the point, right? I'm going to use an example later, but I want to give it to you now. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more later. This is mine, not Solomon, so hope it makes sense. Rain falls, right? We get rain, it falls and hits the ground. If you live in Southern California, it hits the ground and keeps running. It doesn't soak in much at all, right? And so we live here. We live in a beach area, right? So the rain falls, runs along the ground, doesn't do a whole lot, runs in the ocean, where then we go outside and it heats up and it goes back to the clouds and, it flo- and it, then it rains again. Life feels a bit like rain, like our lives are a bit of that rain. It's this perpetual cycle, and we begin to ask the questions Solomon asks. So what's the point? What matters? What do we learn from this? Verse 8, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So this is a great comparison He compares man's longing for satisfaction, we'll call it that. In our sinful ways, it's dissatisfaction, but our longing for satisfaction. And he says this, the eye goes on seeing every day, and yet you never get to this place where you see so much, where you're like, I'm done with my eyes. Or hear so much. Now, you might be done hearing this today, but... It's not like you want to donate your ears anywhere, right? And so he compares this to satisfaction. I was thinking about some of you, and I was going to give you just an excuse you might be able to use, that you may not be able to catch everything today. And so when you stand before God, you can say, I didn't hear what he had to say. You can try that. I'll watch for the lightning. You try that. All right, just It might be your good excuse for today. The sinful human condition is our longing for satisfaction in things and are never satisfied. Those things could be relationships, right? Wrong relationships when we take a spouse or a child or something and we put them in a place where only God can be that, right? Even good godly things, a marriage, a family, a church, a job, health, anything. When you try and find your satisfaction in that, you'll never find it. Like seeing, you'll never get to the end of it. You'll never get to the place where you're like, okay, I've seen all I need to see in life, right? I've heard all the sounds. I'm done. You'll never get there. Verse 9, what has been, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. 
a major theme for Ecclesiastes is Solomon talking about life under the sun. And what he means by that is this human existence, everything that takes place here on earth is this life under the sun. And what he's saying about that is that there's nothing new, right? There's nothing truly new under the sun. What we do is find new ways to do things, right? New ways to get from here to here. When people used to have to walk or ride something, now we bicycle or we skateboard or we have cars or we have airplanes or now people, now all the thing, if you're a gazillionaires, go to space, right? And so we find new ways to travel, but travel has always been. And that's what he's saying. We really don't do something new. We find creative and new ways to do it, but life is the same. People still are born, they live, they age, they mature, they have relationships and families or lack thereof or whatever, and they still die. And we can create new ways to have medicine, but people still die, right? That there's nothing truly new under the sun, that, that our sins are not now more creative they've always been, right? Sexual sin, lust, all those things have always existed. We've just created an internet and populated it full of it. Doesn't make it new. Just new ways to achieve old objectives, both good and bad. Drive to church, way better than walking to church. New ways to sin, not so good. I'm just saying, right? So, <clears throat> Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, nothing lasts forever. That's pretty simple what he says. Nothing lasts forever. I want to do a two sides of the coin, right? I poke fun at two sides of the political spectrum often because we need it. We need to hear it, right? So conservatives, this nation will come and go no matter what, no matter if you fought to defend it, no matter if you love it, no matter, no matter, right? This nation will come and go. Every other nation has come and gone. Rome in its heyday was everything. It was everything we were at the end of World War II, right? It was the most powerful. Now it's a city in Italy, right? Greece, Israel, you name it. The Medo Persian Empire, they're gone, right? We, too, unless Jesus returns first, will too disappear. Conservatives, we need to hear that, right? That this isn't what we're clinging to. Now, for the other side, listen, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done to the Son, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I want you to hear that. Vanity calls it like chasing after the wind, right? You can never grab it. You can never attain it. But listen, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, I'm going to use that for the more progressive side, but it applies to both, right? Conservatives, you can't fix the moral compass of the nation by voting it in, Amen. okay? Progressive folks, you can't create justice and equity. It doesn't exist. You can treat people appropriately, and we can learn how to do better, but you can't fix the problem. Jesus said these words to his, when he was teaching. He said, listen, the poor will always be among us. We can't fix poverty. 
We can't heal justice, fix justice. We can't make life equitable and fair. Life's not fair. You cannot create a world where everybody gets the same experience. And that's one side of the conversation. On the other side, you can't keep or regain or recapture what we once had. It's going to fade. Here's what Solomon's words are, and in our modern day context, we need to hear this. You can't change those facts. There's an episode, I like MASH, you may not like MASH. For those of you under 40, it's a TV show. Anyhow, but, uh, and there's this moment in Hawkeye, you guys all know Hawkeye, and he's just, he's the bomb doctor, surgeon, he's, he's the best, right? And he comes to a place where he just can't save somebody. And Colonel Henry, Henry Blake, it's an early season, obviously, when Blake was still around. And he says, listen, man, there's two things I know. He says, doctors can't fix everything. Number two is, that's never going to change. There's something to that effect. I may be saying it differently, but that's never going to change, right? No one can change rule number one, right? And rule number one is doctors can't fix everything. And we just need to, we need to grapple with what does that mean for us? If your pursuit, if your life is wrapped around justice and equity, I'm going to tell you now, you're chasing the wind. And if your life is wrapped around preserving our nation as it was, and I know we mean the good things it was and not the flaws, we all want the good things, you're chasing the wind. Solomon says, listen, let me tell you from a guy who had all the power, all the money, all the kingdom, all the empire, it's going to go. That's what he says. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He says that not with arrogance. He says that because God made him that verbally. You'll be the wisest man on the planet, basically, right? Verse 17, and I've applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. That's the opposite of wisdom. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Here's what he says, the more you know, the more you know, one, that you don't know. The more you see and the more you understand, the more problems and pain you can recognize. The more you pursue wisdom, you make wisdom a thing all in itself that can never satisfy you like anything else. That's what he's saying. I applied myself. I gave myself to this, right? He read all the books, talked to all the guys, streamed all the videos, right? He applied himself to wisdom and then realized, hey, my heart's in the wrong place chasing wisdom also. Wisdom is good. I want you to have wisdom, but you can't make that your God or anything else. Can't make your family can't make your kids, can't make your political party, can't make this, can't make that, you can't make any of it. You can't make your money, your power, your fame, your status. You can't do it. That can't be your thing because it will leave you empty. Like the eye will never run out of a desire to see or the ear to hear. You cannot make these things your pursuit. Chapter two, verse one. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity pleasure, he says, worthless. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He said, I went to, I went to go have a good time, enjoy life. I found that was empty too. 
That's what he says. Verse 3, I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He says, I sat down with a good beer, and I tried to figure out the problem. He said, I'm still working on it. I'll get back to you. But right now, I got a headache. That's, you know, kind of, that's where he's at, right? Right? Like, okay, but you can't just chase these things. You can't make pleasure your thing. You know, live for today, right? Find your truth. Live your best life. It's all find what you enjoy and press into it. Now, there's wisdom in that, and we'll get to it in a minute. But ultimately, those things can never ever satisfy you. I've had lots of conversations, and so I was joking. I told the staff this. I told the elders this last week. I said my first, I think it was seven days in the office. First, after vacation, in case you're brand new, I went on vacation. I'm back. I'm here. That's good. Okay. So unlike my first seven office days or six office days, I was informed of a pending divorce. I sat down with a woman who came out, says she's a lesbian. I had lunch with a good friend whose daughter was born 17 years, old, 17 years ago, a girl who is now starting testosterone and has a new name. So that was my first week. <clears throat> I love what I do. I need to bring Jesus in those moments. The answer is pretty much the same in all settings, right? And you chase what you think you want, it's unsatisfying. Your sexuality, your gender identity, and your contentment or discontentment with a relationship will never satisfy you. Those things can't be it. They won't be it. You will find yourself on the other side of them as empty as you were. Wisdom versus folly. We'll put this on the screen. Solomon wants wisdom to teach us how to live a life that matters. This is about living as God created us to live, not our cultural mantra, live your best life. So the gospel sits in here, right? That God created us, he loves us, he designed us, right? There's a, there's a thing called an ontological argument. That ontological means your, your design, that argument from design, how you're made. And you are made to be a worshiper of God, right? And that doesn't mean a singer like we do. That's part of the puzzle, but that's not what it means. It means one whose life glorifies God. Right? And all that you do and all that you are brings glory to God. Your life is worship, right? Think like Romans 12, right? And so your life lived out as worship. Now, worship means we put God first and everything else later. The problem, the problem you and I inherit, the problem we have to talk about wisdom, the problem that brings us to the fact that there is a gospel is because all of us abandon that, right? Sin enters into human history millennia ago and then breaks humanity, right? Imagine I go out and I take my Jeep and I try and use it as something it's not designed for, right? I use it in a way that it's not meant to be. I'm going to break it. There are other things, right? Like you who may own a Prius, I get to drive over you. I'm meant to do that, right? I'm built for that, Matt. I'm just saying. So yeah, no, anyhow. But I'm not designed for other things. It's not designed for other things, right? If I try and use it as a a work truck to haul concrete, probably going to have a bad day, right? And so we're made away, and then we break it, 
right? We use our bodies in ways they were never designed. We give our lives to worshiping, and ultimately what it is is ourself. And then inside of ourself, we find all these creative, not new, but creative, ways to worship other things, relationships, jobs, money, power, prestige, you name it. And we're adding to the idolatry and sin of humanity. And so Jesus has to come in and live life in human flesh. God becomes human flesh, fully God, fully human, fully perfect life, life of worship, life that glorifies God. And he goes to the cross, and you know the gospel, that Jesus willingly goes to the cross and he gives his life for you and for me, that our sins, our idolatry, our brokenness can be traded for his wholeness. And on the cross, as Martin Luther says, there is the great exchange where he takes his righteousness and purity and holiness and he trades it for our sin and our shame and our junk. And in that, we get to live a new life. He dies for our sins to give us forgiveness of all the things that we have done and will do. And then he resurrects from the grave and, and gives us his spirit so we can live in new ways, right? Forgiveness should lead to repentance that we should change, be transformed. The Holy Spirit in us should lead us in new ways. Those practical aspects, practical theology is called wisdom, Christian wisdom, biblical wisdom. Live a life that matters. Live a life that glorifies God. Now, how do we do that? Because there's lots of ways, because there's a, a whole bunch of us, and we don't all look the same. In fact, I was joking with the elders also, this first service is very white. I think white people get up early. Thank you, Marcia, because that made it okay, just for the record. All right. I'm not canceled now. So that's good. So it's good. All right. Second service is much different. Overall, our church doesn't have a dominant ethnicity. We're very different. Right? We have a wide spectrum of people. And so you're glorifying God in your context, your job, your socioeconomic status, your family, your life. It's going to look different than mine. That's good. Right? That's where diversity actually is a win, right? But how do we do that? That's our question. We know what not to do now. We know what's not fulfilling. So what do we do? Verse 4. I made great works. Oh, sorry. Let me back up. I'm going to put a slide on the screen. Solomon wants, I think I just put this up, but I'm cold pills. Who knows? Solomon wants wisdom to teach us how to live a life that matters. Yeah, I just read this. This is about living as God created us to live. So let me say that differently. This is living a life God created you to live which is not for you to design, it's for you to figure out. God created it. It's for you to learn what that is and how to do it in your context. If you're a soccer player, you're gonna live it out on the soccer field. If you're a nurse, you're gonna be a nurse, right? Whoever you are, you figure out how do you glorify God in your life, that's the idea. It's not live my best life, like pencil it out, go for it, that's unfulfilling. To live who God created us to be. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses, says Solomon. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools in which water a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born into my house. Think servant, not quite slavery like you think. Not making it right, just clarifying. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any man who had been before me in Jerusalem. He's not laying out what is right. He's laying out what he chased that was wrong. You should hear that. I also, verse 8, gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. Here's what he says. 
I had big houses, lots of gold, lots of women. There's gotta be a hip hop reference in here somewhere, right? <laughs> Solomon had it all, that's his point. So he's telling you I had all this. Verse nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, I did it all. I kept wisdom with me. I think he keeps reminding us that he kept wisdom with him because he kind of knows what he was doing was kind of lame. Like I knew what I was doing, but I kept doing it. He said, I did all this and it was empty. Verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So sat down to think about it again. Well, what can the man do who comes after the king or what has already been done? Then I saw that there's no more gain in wisdom than in folly and there's more gain in light than in darkness. Here's what he says. I'm just gonna put this on screen. Knowing what is worth pursuing. Once we learn that earthly pursuits are empty, we can live a better and more fulfilling lives by shifting our focus to what truly matters. Once we figure out what doesn't matter by process of elimination, we can figure out what matters, right? We can speed the process up because scripture teaches us a lot of what matters and what doesn't matter. We don't have to do a Solomon, gain it all to figure out we don't need it. We can just learn from Solomon who says, hey, listen, I had it all. It's not as good as you think, right? The more money I make, the more taxes I pay. It's not all that fun, right? And I don't make that much. I can imagine what people make a lot of money are, right? There's, there's a weight to the things you get, right? And yeah, at my age, I make a lot more than I did when I was a kid. But it, there's a whole different life to live. And, and it's, it's harder. I just think of that exponentially, like he got there. He got to that thing, right? And he just said, hey, listen, it's not all that worth it. Like I did it all. And I can tell you, it's like I'm at the top of the mountain, I crested the peak, I'm looking around and I'm like, eh, right? Like it wasn't worth the climb, don't do it. That's what he's saying about earthly pursuits. Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, in other words, paying attention, the fool walks in darkness and yet I perceive the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity for the, of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the end of the days to come, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. He's like, man, so I did all this and I'm going to die just like the next dude who didn't do anything. And then I got all this wisdom to figure that out. I'm still going to die just like the next dude. That's what he came to. He says, so I was mad. It was grievous to me. So Solomon learns a lesson here. Remember the rain? Like the rain falls in Southern California, kind of runs off into the ocean, heats back up to the clouds, and it kind of comes over and it rains, right? I know this doesn't happen a lot, so I have to explain it because we're in Southern California, right? We don't see a lot. <laughs> we're a desert that runs into the ocean. I get it, but... So if our life is that rain, what purpose does it have? 
See, one of the things about rain is that it causes a lot of growth here on earth, right? Our life may be worthless. Our life may be, and I don't mean worthless. It may feel that way sometimes. And clearly he's painting that negative side of the picture. But rain's functionally worthless if it doesn't do something. Again, we have such hard ground sometimes it just runs off, right? But the rain that can slow down on the ground long enough to cause that plant to grow, it does something. Still runs off into the ocean or drains off in the ocean or however that works, not a biologist. I don't even know if biology is the right science to call it for that, so that's how bad I am. <laughs> don't laugh, you don't know either, most of you, <laughs> right? Right? I can't even spell horticulture, right? Yeah, so. But if it does something, it matters. So our, our life may be that cyclical thing. We may be here for a minute, then gone, and then somebody else will come and land on this earth. But if we can slow down long enough, here's Solomon's message. You can cause some growth. Not your own necessarily. You can grow, but you can cause something in someone else in the world around you. You can cause a little bit. Just recognize it's a little bit. It's not that much. But a little bit's okay. Otherwise, you can strive to be this. And he's going to give you an outcome for this in a minute. It's pretty bad. Verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. He says, everything I do, I've got to give to somebody else who didn't work for it. And who knows, verse 19, whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom for under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. He says, everything I do is going to get left here. Someone else is going to get it. And what if they're an idiot? That's what he says, right? What if they're dumb? What if they don't work hard? What if they just get it? Right? Think any trust fund kid in the news, right? Yeah. Right? What if, they, what, if, what if they don't appreciate it? What if they don't use it well? He said, I can't control that. He said, now that made me mad. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to do this. I can't really fix it. Someone else is going to get my stuff. You know that super cool car you got or want? Someone's going to get it. They're probably not going to appreciate it. You know that big house you built? You die. Your kids are going to sell it and buy cars. No, I don't know. But you get the point. Can you save and leave a legacy for your kids? Yes. But if I've seen anything from my generation forward, from the generations who struggled back here, especially from the Great Depression on, they wanted to give a better life to their kids. They should have taught them the lessons they learned in poverty instead of giving them money. Because it was just wasted for a lot. It's been wasted a lot. Right? Because we can't really pass that on to people who will appreciate it if they didn't do it. Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Jesus gives a kind of a proverbial, proverbial like proverb, or Ecclesiastes kind of message. Don't lay up treasures in heaven where moth, I mean, treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy. Lay up treasures in heaven 
where no one can take it. But he closes with this. He says, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Here's Solomon's message for us today. Where your heart is, or where your treasure is, where your pursuits are, where your time is, that's where your heart is. They used to say you can look at your checkbook. Again, people under 40, it's this thing we used to use. And it's right, and you can look at that and figure out where, you know, where your, your values are. I would say the same thing. You can look at your calendar, figure out what really matters to you. What you do there, that's where your heart is. Are you invested in your time with God above all else? Are you then invested in the things God has called you to do? To be a spouse, to be a parent, to be a young person growing up, to be a mature and wise adult, whatever it might be. Do you contribute to the larger body? Do you figure out how we can jointly partner together, like with Miss Brooke, to teach our kids about Jesus? You know, the thing that matters forever. Do we serve our community so that our world around us can see Christ in us? It's not about the treasures you lay up in heaven. It's about where your heart is here on earth. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I thank you for the voice to get through it. Lord, and I thank you for the words of your scripture. I thank you that you give us practical theology, not just biblical or systematic theology. You give us your words for our life today. It's not just theory, it's how we live. And everything from the wisdom literature to the very earthy teachings of Jesus remind us that this life only lasts a minute and it's gone. And all the things we focus on here, they stay here. But we can focus on what will be eternal. We can focus on what will be eternal about us, about our marriages, our families, the people we love, our churches. We can lay up those treasures in heaven. Whether they're real treasures or just a metaphor to teach us is irrelevant because it shapes where our heart is. Give us a focus, Lord, to be like you. Let us live like you live, Jesus, which looks a lot different than how we do. And even if you don't call us to that style of life, let us have that heart and attitude that the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. Let us live in the right kingdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen.